Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. I've got a timely topic for you today, subsequent events. Given everything going on in the world, I know there may be more subsequent events that need to be assessed this quarter. To help us understand what to consider, I've invited PwC partners and popular podcast guests, Tom Barbieri and Pat Durbin, to join me remotely for an overview of how what happens in the next few weeks may impact the financial statements. So with that, on with the show. So Pat and Tom, thank you so much for joining me again today. Happy to have you both back on the podcast. And for a topic, I think it's become a lot more important for all of us, just given the rapidly changing nature of events. And that's focused in on subsequent events, and particularly this time of year when people are sort of post-quarter or for some companies post their fiscal year end. Trying to figure out what happens in the next few weeks impacts financial statements can be very challenging. So Pat, maybe to kick things off, can you take us through just an overview of the subsequent events guidance? Sure, Heather, and it's good to be back. Thanks for having me again. Um, So the broad model for subsequent events is essentially split into two types of subsequent events. There are recognized subsequent events, meaning they happen after the balance sheet, but you're actually going to reflect them in the as yet unissued financial statements. And there's non-recognized subsequent events. So you the event occurs after the balance sheet date, but you're not going to recognize that in the financial statements. You might disclose it, and we'll hit that later, but they're recognized and non-recognized. So what's the difference? So a recognized subsequent event is an event that provides additional evidence or information about conditions that existed at the balance sheet date. And those can include conditions about estimates that were inherent in the process of preparing the financial statements. Classic example of this type of subsequent event is the settlement or adjudication of a legal dispute that was in process prior to the balance sheet date, but gets resolved after the balance sheet date. The non-recognized subsequent events are events that provide evidence about conditions that did not exist at the balance sheet date, but arose subsequent to that date. Therefore, they're called non-recognized subsequent events. And a classic example of this type of subsequent event would be a significant loss due to an accident or a natural disaster that occurred after the balance sheet date. So then, Pat, one question for you, because the terminology you're using sure makes sense to all our younger audience. But for us longtime accountants, I think we've always thought of this as sort of type one and type two. So can you explain maybe how that fits in and perhaps the reason for the change? Yeah, sure, Heather. So um, there was an old auditing standard that talked about subsequent events, and it referred to them as type one which would be the corollary to recognize subsequent events, or type two, which would be the non-recognized variety. When the subsequent events guidance was codified in the accounting literature several years ago now, um, they did away with the, you could call it jargon of type one and type two and used more plain English descriptors. But essentially, the concepts are the same. We just call them by their Uh, words now as opposed to their numbers. All right, that's helpful. So then, Pat, one other question I know we get a lot is how long I have to keep evaluating subsequent events. Yeah, and that was also clarified uh, when the um, accounting standards codified the subsequent events guidance. And so the specific requirement now is that 
subsequent events need to be evaluated up until the date the financial statements are issued, or in the case of a public company filed with a regulatory authority with the SEC, for example. If you're not a public company, you need to evaluate them up until the financial statements are available to be issued. So it is a little bit of a practical challenge, and we can talk a little bit more about it later to make sure you operationalize your financial reporting process to evaluate those events up until the point of issuance. So, Pat, thanks for that overview. And maybe one more question before we get into some specific examples. And Tom, I'll turn this to you, is that in dealing with subsequent events, there's really two broad categories in in addition to the fact there's obviously different types within that. But in one case, actual transactions are occurring. And then in the other case, we're receiving new or updated information on, you know, something that was recorded at the balance sheet date. So how do we think about those two different types of subsequent events? Yeah, it's it's a good question, Heather. So so certainly if the event in question is an actual transaction, you know, determining what whether that happened before or after the balance sheet date should be relatively straightforward. Where it becomes a little bit more challenging is when you determine whether an event or new information should be recognized or non-recognized is when circumstances are evolving over an extended period of time versus a single sort of isolated event. So what's an example of that? Well, think of a contractual dispute that might be evolving over time or think about the economics effects of of COVID-19 and sort of the emergence of that and how that impacted the marketplace over time. So for those, it gets very difficult to figure out whether or not those should be recognized or whether some portion should be recognized or not. It's going to be very judgmental. Additionally, I think when it comes to disclosure, the decision about whether or not to disclose a subsequent event is based upon specific facts and circumstances. And it really considers materiality, both in terms of quantitative and qualitative um, judgments around materiality. So generally, a subsequent event should be disclosed if it meets both of the following criteria. The first would be the event has or will have a determinable significant effect on the entity's financial position, results of operations, right? And that would be the case even if it's not yet definitively quantified, right? So you sort of have a feel that it's going to have some material impact, but you really don't know what it is. And that that happened, quite frankly, at the end of the first quarter for COVID. People knew that they were going to have losses coming on securities and things like that, but they really couldn't quantify it. I think the, the second factor you need to think about is if you don't disclose it, would the financial statements be misleading? And so that's going to be an indicator that you know disclosure is going to be warranted. So Heather, I think you need to apply some judgment based upon the event and the information available as to whether or not you'd consider it or not. Yeah, I think that's helpful, Tom. And it is interesting because I just think past conversations I've been involved in with subsequent events, I don't think we've necessarily had a situation as difficult as we have right now where things really are changing by day by day. And it's really hard to say, did that exist at June 30th? Did it not? And so I think this is where maybe running through some specifics of different places in the accounting literature and where subsequent events may occur and, and may be applicable would be helpful. So with sort of that backdrop, Pat, why don't we start off with the classic example of a subsequent event, which would be information or resolution of a contingency, either a gain or a loss contingency? Yeah, sure, Heather. So as we mentioned earlier in one of the classic examples, settlement of litigation after the balance sheet date, very typical that that would be a recognized subsequent event. Generally speaking, those take a long time. The window between the balance sheet date and the issuance of the financial statements is typically shorter. So usually it's just a matter of some resolution activity, not any new event per se. 
there is a little bit of a nuance here, though. So if you had a contingency, if you had a, an accrual for a loss contingency, and that was subsequently resolved, certainly if it's resolved for an amount in excess of the original accrual, that would be a recognized subsequent event. If it's resolved for an amount less than what you had it accrued for, that would also be recognized because what you're doing is adjusting the estimate that you had made, that estimated loss. So you're adjusting it for that new information. You have better information about the, the, the loss that was ultimately sustained. That's distinguished from a situation where you would have nothing recognized at the balance sheet date. Potentially, you have a opportunity for a gain from the litigation or the dispute. And if that gain arises, in the subsequent period, that's a non-recognized subsequent event, not necessarily because of the subsequent events guidance, but because of the guidance around gain contingencies, which require you to recognize them when they're realized or realizable. So if you had no knowledge of that or weren't in a position to be able to recognize that gain as of the balance sheet date and only as a result of that post-balance sheet settlement, you have a gain, that would be recognized in the subsequent period. Now, certainly you'd have disclosure about that, but it wouldn't be recognized in the financial statements. Yeah. And I think, Pat, this is an area where it can get complicated because people get focused on, oh, I'm recording a credit to the income statement. I can't recognize it. And what you're saying is, no, you have to go back and look, are you dealing with fundamentally a loss contingency for the company or a gain contingency for the company? That's absolutely right, Heather. That's a good way to summarize it. Okay. So then, Tom, maybe turning to another place where I think subsequent events has made life more complicated for companies, and that is the recognition of credit losses. And, you know, bad timing that COVID and adoption of CECL happened at the same time. But I know there's been some guidance and definitely we've already been through one quarter. So what can you share there? Yeah, sure. So, so Heather, I think if you think about the old credit loss model, which was an incurred loss model, many post-balance sheet events would have likely been taken into account in assessing the allowance for uncollectible amounts or allowance for loan losses. Now, under the CECL model, right, we have a different model. And so the CECL model requires us to sort of forecast out what we think losses will occur over some period of time, right? So it involves you forecasting out uh, things like the likelihood of default, et cetera. And so determining whether or not you take into account some of these post balance sheet events, there was a question out there around how you'd think about it. So the SEC did provide some comments about subsequent events a couple of years ago in the context of CECL. And I think the guidance, which I'll sort of walk through and the, the approach they, they described, I think will be helpful model for a wide range of estimates. So what'd they say? Well, first, they distinguish between loan-specific information and forecasting assumptions, okay? So loan-specific information received after the balance sheet date about factual conditions of the loan that existed at the balance sheet date, those must be considered in your CESL analysis. So what's an example of that? Well, an example of that would be is if you're a lender and you get a servicing report from your loan servicer, which tells you which loans were delinquent at your balance sheet date, it's sort of evidence that there was something existing in that loan at the balance sheet date that you would consider. Another an example would be an appraisal report. So if you get an appraisal report that tells you what the appraisal value of the collateral underlying the loan was at the balance sheet date, you would take that into account as well. Okay, So that was pretty straightforward and I think not really controversial. 
I think where the debate really arose was around forecasting assumptions, so the second type. Now, what's an example of that? Well, if you think about a published unemployment rate, so say the government comes out with an unemployment rate in January where they say what the unemployment rate was at the end of December. The question was, should you include it or not? And what the SEC effectively said is, it depends. Okay, So if you've received the information before you've actually completed your credit estimation loss process, so your controlled process, you have a choice. You could either consider it or not consider it. It's really an accounting policy decision that you can, should consistently apply. If, however, you've closed your process and you're done, you would not need to consider it. So that's something I think people should, should take into account. Now, they did make some other observation, which I think you need to assess, is it's possible that the receipt of the information could indicate that there was a weakness in your controlled process. If so then all bets are off and you need to include that information, right? Because I, I think that's sort of begging the question around whether your process was really appropriate at the time. Does that make sense? So yes, Tom, it does make sense. But I actually have a question then back to you, Pat, because this sounds a little different in terms of this model uh, that we're applying to CESOL as discussed by the SEC compared to maybe what we talked about when you're looking at you know, a, a contract-specific loss or something else. So can, can you help me understand the difference there? Yeah, I think it, it really comes down to this point that Tom mentioned about whether it's loan-specific or translate that to other contexts, sort of a specific relationship that you have with a specific entity and you get new information about that versus other broad-based market information that would inform the estimate you're making You've done a diligent process, you've completed that process, and now somehow a new table, a new data set becomes available. Do you need to think about that? So I think if it's specific to that relationship, you always need to go back and deal with that in the context of the guidance that says evaluate the events up to the date of issuance. It's really when you're in this sort of general information context that you have this sort of different time frame potentially. Okay, Pat, I think that's helpful. And and then Tom, maybe turning to another area where I think sometimes people get confused about how they use information available after the balance sheet date, that would be fair value. And what you consider as of, let's say, June 30th, and then when you incorporate subsequent information. So, for example, let's, let's take a situation in which you've got securities, these are debt or equity securities that you're fair valuing at your balance sheet date. When you think about fair value concepts, you need to remember that fair value is determined by considering market assumptions and what information would be available to a market participant at the measurement date, right? So generally, subsequent events would not be considered unless that information would have been known or knowable by the market participant at the measurement date. So if it should have been known or knowable, um, the fair value estimate would have been updated to include this information. So what's an example of that? Well, Let's say you valued a stock at, at your balance sheet date, but you came aware after the balance sheet date that the company filed for bankruptcy before the balance sheet date. Right? So that would be a case where that information should have been known. It's publicly available. And so you need to take that into account in determining fair value. Contrast this to valuing a stock for a pharmaceutical company, and they get FDA approval on a drug post your balance sheet date. That 
would be something there was still a question around whether they get the FDA approval at year end. So again, you wouldn't take that information into consideration. Again, it might lead to a subsequent event disclosure if it's significant, et cetera, but you wouldn't go back and adjust your fair value estimate. I think also many times companies use NEV or net asset value as a practical expedient, right? Instead of actually doing a fair value. And this would be a case where you've got investments in certain investment funds. Sometimes you might get information around reported NAVs that you're using for fair values that are either on a lag or preliminary, and those don't get revised until you're further down into your close process. Well, if those NAVs right, are showing what the true net asset value would have been at the reporting period end, you need to go back and adjust those because those would have been the basis for current transactions. So I think you need to think about that as well as you consider fair value. So then, Tom, I think that's helpful, but one follow-up question, because you used an example of a bankruptcy before the balance sheet date, and often we think about bankruptcies after the balance sheet date, and so how would we think about a bankruptcy after the balance sheet date? Actually, maybe rewinding to our Cecil conversation to start, and then we can talk a little about fair value, too. Yeah, sure. So on Cecil, it's, it's interesting, right? I think under the old and current model, Many people looked at bankruptcies that occurred after the balance sheet date saying, hey, those are confirming, oftentimes confirming events of an incurred loss that might have existed as of the balance sheet date. I think in a post-CECL world, right, we're, we're back uh, left to these two buckets. Is it something that's really loan-specific information or is it something that's in your forecasting assumptions? I think oftentimes when it comes to things like bankruptcy or, or future losses that might occur from bankruptcy, they're oftentimes included within your forecasting assumptions. So you might have already factored that in or not, depending upon where you were in your process. Sometimes, however, the nature of the bankruptcy might indicate what the status of the loan might have been at year end, right? And so that might be the case if bankruptcy is filed a day after the balance sheet date, I'll take it to the extreme. So I think you really need to apply judgment on, is it loan specific or is it in your forecasting assumptions and make that you know, determination to figure out whether or not you need to to make an adjustment. I think that's helpful. And I always do this, but for all of our non-financial instruments or financial institution listeners, loan-specific translates to receivable-specific, which right. I think people know because they've listened to us talk enough, but I always like to throw that in there. So for the benefit of that audience, Pat, why don't we turn to another topic where subsequent events can also have an impact and the model is also a little different, and that would be in the area of inventory. Sure, Heather, and I think most of our audience is probably aware that inventory is not measured at fair value. It's measured at cost or the lower of cost and net realizable value. And that net realizable value concept incorporates the notion of sale of the inventory in the ordinary course of business, which by definition will be after the balance sheet date. So it is, in fact, appropriate to consider the post-balance sheet sales experience of the inventory in evaluating the valuation or the impairment of inventory at the balance sheet date. So it's almost like its own model that has a combination of it's a current value at the balance sheet date, but is by definition incorporates activity that happened after the balance sheet date, which is certainly different than the fair value model that, that Tom described. Okay. I think that's definitely helpful. One other thing I was actually thinking about when you guys were both talking is that I feel like 
you know, when we grew up as accountants, which is around the same time for all of us, the whole type one, type two seems so black and white. It's either type one or it's type two. And the new terminology doesn't really have that same sort of it's one or the other. I mean, I know, you know, and I think this conversation really kind of points that out is that you really need to think through what you're dealing with, your facts and circumstances, what the information is. And then obviously all of these different examples cover that. With all that said, to wrap things up, because we've covered a lot, is there any final wrap up or compare and contrast that you guys would like to give just to give some final thoughts for our listeners and maybe Tom, starting with you? Yeah, look, I, I think Pat hit on it. I think the, the hardest part of this process is to make sure you've got a comprehensive inventory of what all the subsequent events are. So that's, that's one is making sure you've got that process. And for large corporations, trying to identify all of those and getting the, I'll call it the the controllers at the business level to identify all those can be difficult. So that, that's sort of question one. Two is figuring out how that impacted or has the potential to impact what your numbers are at your end would be the second piece of that consideration. So determining what accounting model am I in? Is there specific requirements of how I would treat those events? Yes or no? Figuring that out, I think you need to have a process around that. And probably the last piece is disclosure. It's really important to have appropriate disclosure of subsequent events, making sure it's robust, that the reader understands what the event is, how it's going to impact the financials, even if you've yet to quantify it. So that came up a lot was COVID, right? We had a lot of losses that were coming. I think it was where we saw good disclosures where people were identifying amounts sitting on their balance sheet that were at risk of, of potential losses. So really being specific so a reader understands how the event can manifest itself in in affecting the financial statements over that. Those would be the three key points I'd highlight. Good. Thank you. And Pat, anything to add to that? No, I think Tom summed it up well. I mean, it, it is an area that will require judgment and making sure you have all the right people at the table in that disclosure process to make those judgments. Okay, good. Thank you both. And one thing I can't remember, I know Pat's actually been a guest since we started this. I don't think you have, Tom, but now... Given all of the sort of negative events out in the world, we are trying to end each of our podcasts with a more positive uh, tone. And so I'd like to end with a question. Uh, today's would be, uh, even with all the changes, anything fun that you have planned um, for sort of the rest of the summer? So, Pat, since you've been through this before, although not that question, I'll start with you. Yeah, so I'm uh, fairly um, simple when it comes to finding ways to entertain myself. So, I mean, probably just uh, playing some golf and relaxing, hanging at the beach or the pool. Still should be nice to uh, slow things down and enjoy the nice weather. It does sound good. How about you, Tom? Well, I definitely agree with Pat on the golf, beach, and pool. I'll, I'll certainly spend a lot of time on the beach um, basically uh, snacking on things while I sit there and watch the waves and do nothing. Other than that, you know, I, I play a lot of guitar, so I'll be playing a lot of guitar to sort of disconnect from everything that's happening out in the world right now. So I think that's generally it. Yes, very nice. Both, thank you very much. Really appreciate all the insight. And I hope you get time to spend on golf, guitar, and beach and pool. So thanks again. Great. Thank you, Heather. Join me back here this Thursday for a new episode in our What's Next Summer series. We'll be talking about the changing workday, remote work, going back to the office, and avoiding burnout. It's a topic that's on all of our minds, so I hope you'll tune in. And 
If you're looking for an accounting fix, join me back here next Tuesday to talk about stock compensation. So that you never miss an episode of any of our audio content, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.